saints remain standing and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we will consider verse 18, the first half of verse 18. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. He is also head of the body, the church. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word and now to the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Today, saints, we will consider the opening verse of 18. Christ, the head of the church. That is the doctrine that we will consider. Christ being the head of the church. Here, Paul continues to set forth the preeminence of Jesus Christ, Christ being superior over all, by pointing to his headship, uh, not just merely his headship over all creation, but also his headship, more specifically, over the church. The question that we want to answer is simply this today is, what does it mean for Christ to be head of the church? Uh, What does it mean for Christ to be head of the church, and why does Paul use this this metaphor of Christ, or rather uh, the the head and the body. We will consider this question in four ways. But before we do, let's clarify uh, what we don't mean when we say that Christ is head of the church. When we say that Christ is head of the church, we are not speaking literally or materially or corporeally. Again, we're not speaking literally or corporeally, meaning that the church, you, and Jesus Christ, him, don't come together and, and form, like, come together like a transformer. Uh, I, I know you don't think that, I'm sure, but there might be those who do think that. We don't want to interpret Christ being the head of the church as literally, but rather it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. Verse 18 is to be interpreted as a metaphor. This metaphor then, is meant to speak of the close relationship that Jesus Christ has with the church. It's a relationship that's so close that we can identify it with our own experience, the head and the body. And there's there's not a closer relationship that we experience in our own lives than our bodies connected to our heads. And likewise, your relationship, and again, saints, this is not a fairy tale. This is actually real. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is as close of proximity, um, uh, and it's similar to your, your head and your body. Such close relationship that we can say that Christ and the church are one person. Christ and the church are one person. This is uh, technically called, theologians call what's called the whole Christ. The church and Jesus Christ make up one mysterious spiritual person. Remember our Lord's words in Paul to Paul in Acts 9-4. Pastor Antonio alluded, uh, spoke of it this morning. Falling down to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Um, Christ is asking Paul, who was Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, did Paul ever persecute Jesus Christ? Well, yes, because whatever you do to the church, you do to Jesus Christ. Christ such, he so identifies himself with the church that he's saying, when the church is persecuted, you're persecuting me. 
The second question is, who is the church that's spoken of in our text? Again, our text reads that he is also head of the body, the church. Who is the church that is being spoken of here in our text? Is it the invisible church, all believers? Or is it just merely the visible church, all those who are believers who have united themselves with a local body? Whom is he speaking of? And saints of God, we must we must conclude the ones whom are spoken of here, the church, is both the invisible church and the visible church. Meaning, it's not just Reformed Christians, and it's not just Christians in Reformation Bible Church, but it's Christians all throughout the world who profess the name of Jesus Christ. That is the church that's being spoken of here. Francis Turretin calls the church a holy society and a mystical body. Embracing all the elect united in the bond of the same spirit, faith, love with each other, with Jesus Christ. And lastly, lastly, to which nature is Christ head of the church or over the church? To which nature is Christ head over the church? We may think, well, of course, Christ as God is head of the church because God is head over all things. But I think Paul has in mind here, and we're going to argue next week when we talk about the grace of Christ and him having the fullness of grace, is that Christ not only as God is head of the church, but also, and more specifically, Christ as man is head over the church. And we'll consider that next week. Congregation, let's consider Christ's headship in four ways. Christ's headship over the church in four ways. First, Christ is head of the church by way of order. You might ask, how is he head of the church? He's... He's head of the church by way of order. Just as the head is superior to the rest of the members of the body, Christ is the head of the church. Your head is more important than your legs. And your head, we know this by experience, your head is more important than your arms and your feet and your fingers. Our heads is the noblest and highest part of who we are. We identify others by their heads. And likewise with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not just superior over all, but most especially he's superior over his church. Over his church. Just as Christ has supreme authority over this universe, he has supreme authority and rule over his church. Thomas Aquinas says succinctly, the word head is employed in regard to exterior government. As a king is said to be head over his kingdom. And thus we see this in scripture. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 22 to 23. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. And made him head over all things to the church. Which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Just as kings are over their countries. Just as presidents are over their nations. Just as owners are over their companies. Just as parents are over their children, Jesus Christ, in a more superior way, in a more supreme way, is head over the church. And saints, this is great comfort for us, is it not? Great comfort for us. Think of the comfort, saints, that you feel when those above us, those who are ahead of us, those who are superior to us, are trustworthy. Think of the comfort that you feel When you know that your superior, that who ranks above you, is strong, 
The comfort that you feel. Many of you work in places and your bosses, you trust them. You put great faith in them, especially if the market was going down. You can trust your boss. You can trust the company, uh, knowing that nothing is going to happen to you. Knowing that in one way, shape, or form, uh, money will still be in my bank. The bills will still be getting paid. Saints of God, in our own lives, we can think of people above us. You can think of your mother. You can think of your father. You can think of your grandmother or those above you whom you can look to and say that I know my life will be okay because this person exists. Well, saints of God, we can say that with Jesus Christ. We have no room to fear because of our head. We have no room to fear because of our head. Remember the words of Christ to Peter in Matthew 18, 16, 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail. Upon which rock? Upon the affirmation of the superiority and, and the and, and the, and the divinity of Jesus Christ and who He is. Upon the superior, the, the confessing the superiority of Jesus Christ, Christ builds His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. We also see this truth undermining in many Christian, in many churches today. I don't want to harp on this long, but we see in many churches today, by the manner in which the church worships, by the ways the pastors, or rather, you could say what the pastor wears, you can even say the songs that the churches sing, uh, the, 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 the worldly philosophies that they allow uh, to be infiltrated into their churches. You can tell who's head over their church. If someone was to ask you, why do you at Reformation Bible Church worship this way and we worship this way? So, saints of God, one of the answers you can give is because Christ is our head. Because Christ is our head, because he's head of the church, he dictates and regulates how we worship him. He is our head. Therefore, we worship the way in which our head tells us to worship him. Secondly, Christ is head of the church by way of power. By way of power, just as the head directs the movement of the body, likewise, Jesus Christ directs the church. Think of ourselves, saints. What directs where you go? What directs where you go? Well, your legs can't go somewhere unless your head, which has your eyes, um, um, really locates or dictates some place to go. Your head, we can say, informs the rest of your body how it is to operate. You don't touch things unless you see them. You don't walk to a place unless you know where you are going. It is your head that directs all of the the rest of the movements that goes on with your with your feet and with your arms. It tells your hands what to touch. It tells our feet where to walk. And so it is with Jesus Christ in the church. The psalmist says in Psalm 37, 30, 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. As head of the church, Jesus Christ, saints, directs our lives. He directs our lives. Saints of God, if you want to know how to live the Christian life, there's many books that you can read to answer such question. But saints of God, look no further than Jesus Christ. If you want to know how to live the Christian life, look no further than Jesus Christ. Christ is the exemplar of how we are to live 
the Christian life. Let me just give you a few examples. First, Christ teaches us that the Christian life is a life of prayer. Luke 5, 16 through 15 through 16. But the news about Jesus spread all the more and great clouds came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. And speaking of Christ here, yet he frequently withdrew to the wilderness to pray. Secondly, Jesus Christ teaches us that the Christian life is a life of forgiveness. Luke 23, verses 33 to 34. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. And Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. On the cross, Jesus Christ looks down at those who pierced him and says, Father, forgive them. Third, Jesus Christ teaches us that the Christian life is a life of submission to God. Matthew 26, 39. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed and saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Fourthly, Jesus Christ teaches us that the Christian life is a life of service. Matthew 25, 35-40. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me, and I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did I see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? And when did we see you as a stranger, invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in a person or in person and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Whatever you do to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, you're doing to Jesus Christ. He so identifies himself with his body that he says, whatever you do to them, you do to me. And lastly, Jesus Christ teaches us that the root, the root of all of our actions is to be love. John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Our Christ in his earthly life modeled this saints. And here are we, either we at his body are to model our lives after our head. The head is to be like the, the body is to be like the head. And our life is to be patterned after the life of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, Christ is the head by way of perfection, by way of perfection. Thomas Quantas says, in so much as the head dwell all the senses, both interior and exterior, whereas in the other members, there is only one touch. Beautiful example. What he's simply saying is this, that your head does things that your feet and hands can't do. Your feet and hands can touch, but they can't see. But your head, your head can see and can feel. Your head can feel the same things your feet and your hands can, can feel. But your feet and your hands can't do the very things that your head could do. Your head carries all of the senses and Likewise with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is more perfect than the body. Jesus Christ, in a more perfect way than the members of his body, he has one thing that we don't have, many things rather, but there's one thing specifically, and that is grace. He has the fullness of grace. And we receive grace measurably. We'll consider that next week. Fourthly and lastly, Christ is the head of the church by way of influence. By way of influence. John Davenant says, For the head imparts and communicates sense and motion to all its members. The members are devoid of all motion and sense if separated from the head. If you're separated from your head, your body cannot do anything. 
Your body cannot walk where it's supposed to go. It's not supposed to touch where it's supposed to touch or what it's supposed to touch. John Dominus says, so Christ sends forth spiritual life and the motion of grace into its members, his members, which otherwise insensible, dead, and destitute of all spiritual motion. Congregation, what's the reason why you can perform good works? And not just a generic good works that the pagans can do. Pagans can do good works. But I'm speaking about a good work that God looks at and says, that's a good work. Why can you do such things? Well, how can your works be considered as a good work by God? Who gives you spiritual power? The answer, of course, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gives you spiritual power so that God can look down upon, for instance, your work that you did today by waking up and coming to worship him and say, that is a good work. That is a good work. John 15, 4 through 5, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Here we see another analogy set forth to help us understand the relationship between Christ and the church. It's such a close relationship, saints, that we can liken our relationship to Christ as to a vine and branches. Vine and branches. Jesus Christ is the vine. And we are the branches. What does a vine do, saints? Well, a vine's function is to do one thing. And that is to pump life into the branches. To pump life into the branches. And what is the branch to do? The branch is to bear the fruit of the vine. It's to bear the fruit of the vine. And this is what Jesus is getting at in John 15. That Remember we talked about this two weeks ago, that Jesus Christ starts our existence, sustains our existence, but also ends our existence. In Him we have life, breath, and all things. But also saying spiritually, spiritually, he puts us in motion. He spiritually puts you in motion. He sustains us spiritually. How have you been sustained this entire time? Because Jesus Christ, your vine has been pumping his life to you. Martin Luther put it well when he said, my holiness, my righteousness and my purity do not stem from me nor do they depend on me. They come solely from Christ and are based only in Him, in whom I am rooted by faith, just as sap flows from the stock into the branches. In other words, congregation, Jesus Christ strengthens you. Jesus Christ strengthens you. It is Jesus Christ who spiritually energizes you He spiritually energizes you to love Him with your will and to know Him with your intellect. He is the source of our spiritual life. This is important for us to know, congregation. For many Christians believe that after conversion, after we have said yes to Jesus Christ, that God lets us work out our own salvation without His assistance and without His guide and without His grace. That once we believe Now we're on our own. And while it is true that we must work out our own salvation, it is not true that God leaves us alone in the process. Again, while it's true that we work out our own salvation, it is not true that God leaves us alone to figure it out. 
Jesus makes this clear in John 15. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus Christ, you can do nothing. Thomas Aquinas says beautifully, with these words, he instructs the hearts of the humble and silences the mouths of the proud, especially the Pelagians. Who are Pelagians? He says here, who say that they can do it by themselves without the help of God. And good works are the virtues of the law. And although they were trying to maintain their free will, they really undermine it. Oh, such a beautiful quote by St. Thomas Aquinas. That we are not to fall into the error of the Pelagians who think that upon our own strength, our own strength, that we, that we can do spiritual good. No, Thomas Aquinas following the words of Paul, following the words of Christ, following the words of St. Peter, following all the Orthodox throughout the time, have said that there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves. But it is God. It is God that must energize us. It is God that must spiritually motivate us. Saints of God, you know this well. You know this well. That your spiritual strength does not originate in you. But it's Jesus Christ through His Spirit and by His grace that strengthens us. We can all testify to this. And we all know this by experience. Saints of God, from the very moment of conversion... It was Christ that spiritually energized you to believe upon Him. Even now, even now, saints, for you to wake up, to come to church, it is Christ that spiritually energized you to come. Saints of God, you coming here is not a work of your own, although it is it is your work. It is first and foremost Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ, saints. For the very moment of conversion, to even now, to even to the very moments that we will have on this earth, it is Jesus Christ who strengthens us. <clears throat> There's much more we can say. Much more we can say. Next week we will consider the fullness of the grace that Christ has as head. Because we can't disconnect Christ being the head of the church with also have, without also having Him or having Him having the fullness of grace. What are comforts then do we receive from this doctrine of Christ being the head of the church? What comforts do we receive? What can we contemplate on in light of this doctrine? <coughs> Consider, saints, just one. Because Christ is the head of the church, and the church is Christ's body, Jesus Christ and the church make up one mysterious person. Jesus Christ makes up one mysterious person. We can say this, and I'll explain it after I say it. That we complete Jesus Christ. That we complete Jesus Christ. Now you might say that's a little... Christ is already complete. And sure He is. He is very God of very God. He doesn't need us. But but here's the thing. Christ has decreed that we complete Him. Christ has decreed that we, that we, that we complete Him. We'll see this later in Colossians where, where Paul will, spoke, will talk about that. That we are making up... What's lacking the sufferings of Christ? We'll get there. But we in Jesus Christ, saints, this is not a fairy tale. This is not imagination that, that we in Christ make up one person. Make up one person. And the two great comforts from this, saints, is that Christ's victories are all victories. We've been hearing of this beautifully 
Every Sunday morning, have we not? (laughs) Even this morning, saints, that God allows us to participate in judgment. We participate in the very things that it would seem to us that only God alone should do. That only God alone has the chair and the seat to do. He allows us to participate in that. That Christ's victories are our victories. And where Christ lives is our destination. Considering Christ's victories, John Davident says wonderfully, whereas our head was a man, we have this comfort. That every ground of triumphing over us is taken from the devil. He who overcame the first Adam, the head in the beginning of the human race, but the second Adam, the head of the church, overcame him. Nay, in Christ, we who are his members conquer. Just as in Adam, we were conquered. The victory of our head makes us conquerors. Saints of God, we were united to Adam. And in Adam, Satan defeated us. But he's no longer our head. Jesus Christ is our head. And if Christ wins, we win. If Christ has a victory, we have the victory. Romans 8, 37. Remember the words of St. Paul, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Oh, saints of God, what is Christ's greatest victory? Well, there's many things we can say. But one thing we can say that's very at the top of the list is the greatest victory of Christ is His victory over death. At Christ's victory over death. Consider Colossians 3.1. Just to give you a context, we could say that our victory, or rather Christ's victory over death, is our victory. This is why Paul can say, therefore, if you have been that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. How can Paul say that we've been raised with Christ when we have not yet died and we have not yet been raised? How can he say that, that you now have been raised with Christ? The answer is this, saints, because the head has been raised. And because if the head is raised, then the body will be raised as well. In fact, saints, we can say that at the resurrection of Christ, it wasn't just one body that was raised. At the resur- When Christ resurrected on that third day, it wasn't just him rising from the dead. It was the church rising from the dead as well. Not just Christ's physical body, but his spiritual body was being raised up with him. This is why Paul can speak of our resurrection as something that's already happened. Because our Christ, our head, has already undergone it. The resurrection of Christ was the resurrection of the whole Christ. Of the whole person. Not just his human body, but also his spiritual body. The church. Because Christ is our head. We will be where he is at one day. <clears throat> sister Ophelia, a couple weeks ago, sorry sister to um, put you on the spot like this, but she said that she can see the finish line and the ending is near. Oh, saints of God, and we might not talk to the elderly as much as we should, but for those who see that the, that the finish line is near, that the, the end is near, Oh, what great, what great, great comfort you have in this, that you will be with your head one day. That you 
although your body and your soul may detach, you will not detach from your head. You will be with Him spiritually, with, united with Him, with your soul, and then one day physically you will be with Him. And even for us, I am just a dying man preaching to dying people. And all of us, all of us saints, if we look hard enough, if we look hard enough, we all can see the finish line. We all can see the finish line. We all know that the end is near. Oh, what great comfort we have knowing that the finish line looks good, does it not? Because our head is there. And He will bring His body with Him. Our future, saints, is oh so hopeful that wherever our head is at, the body will be also. We close with the words of Christ in John 14.3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again, and I will take you to myself, so that where I am, there also you will be. Let's pray.